Hello, I'm Art Fuller, Ph.D., and welcome to another episode of The 5-Minute Expert, where today we're talking about blood donation. Chances are good that you or a family member or a friend have had a blood transfusion at some point in time. This was made possible because someone voluntarily had their blood withdrawn either to use in a transfusion or made into a medication by a process called fractionation, where blood is separated into blood components. Now, why would a person voluntarily do this? How much blood is withdrawn when a blood donation takes place? And how did this whole system of withdrawing blood and giving it to someone else even come about? Before we transmit too much information, let's hear a brief interlude of commerce from this week's sponsor, Vampire's Delight. Do the words blood donation center excite you? Do you find yourself frequenting local blood drives all in the hope of just seeing some stray platelets? You may be experiencing Renfield Syndrome, characterized by the desire to drink blood. We here at Vampire's Delight can help. We manufacture synthetic, clinically safe blood for persons suffering from Renfields. Made from a harmless combination of coconut and almond milk, Vampire's Delight, or VD for short, has been found to satisfy the blood cravings of 98.7% of persons who struggle with this ailment. Imagine waking up to a cool glass of your favorite hemoglobin and not having to worry about running out. If you've got Renfields, we've got the plasma for you. That's Vampire's Delight. Well, as early as the 19th century in Europe, doctors began performing transfusions using human blood. At the time, blood transfusions were seen not only as a treatment for blood loss, but as a procedure that could potentially alter a person's character. These attempts were severely limited, though, by physicians' poor understanding of the circulatory system, the crude equipment they had, and just ineffective techniques. So many patients, as well as donors, died. But in 1900, Carl Landsteiner, an anatomist in Vienna, discovered that human blood had different types and that the donor and recipient blood types in transfusions needed to be the same. In 1908, French surgeon Alex Carroll devised a method for direct transfusion by stitching the blood vessels of the donor and the recipient together, which reduced the serious effects of coagulation. In 1913, physician Edward Lindemann in the U.S. introduced a new method of transfusion that involved inserting a hollow tube into the vessels of both donor and recipient, ridding doctors of the need to cut open any wrists. And finally, in 1915, Richard Lewison, another physician from the U.S., introduced an effective chemical anticoagulant. So for the first time in history, blood could be withdrawn from a donor's vein, stored for a reasonable period, and transfused into the recipient at the medical staff's convenience. The idea of a blood reserve or a blood bank suddenly became possible. But two obstacles still had to be faced. How could a system be set up to support a blood bank and how could medical personnel help people see donating blood 
as a moral imperative for the greater good. War aided this cultural shift in people's thinking about blood donation. The first public health initiative involving a large-scale blood transfer operation occurred in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, which happened from 1936 to 1939. And following a successful example from the Soviet Union, where hospitals began collecting and storing small quantities of blood from fresh cadavers, surgeons on the front lines began operating mobile blood services using living donors. A few years later, in the months leading up to World War II, a blood service started operating in London, saving thousands of lives during the German bombing campaign of that city. And in the U.S., the Red Cross began collecting blood nationwide for military use in 1941. But following the war, many European countries kept their blood donation services centralized and based on altruistic donation. But in other countries like the U.S., blood began to be seen as a commodity to be bought and sold for a profit rather than a public resource. In the 1960s and 70s, the for-profit plasma industry boomed. Companies set up plasma collection units, mostly in impoverished areas, including along the Mexico-U.S. border. Areas where an average price of $10 a pint for plasma, and which was sometimes paid in liquor store vouchers, seemed like a good deal for many people. The saddest example of this new form of biological exploitation was the widespread collection of plasma from inmates in U.S. prisons starting in the 1960s. For example, in Arkansas, a controversial prison blood and plasma center started operating at Cummins Prison in 1963. Inmates who had virtually no other means to earn an income were paid as little as $7 for a pint of blood which the prisons then turned around and sold for over $100. Well, today, blood donation is much more controlled. Potential donors are evaluated and screened for anything that might make their blood unsafe. This includes things like HIV, STDs, and hepatitis. Donors must wait at least 56 days between donations. And a typical donation is one pint although this varies by countries, with many countries, including China and India, having donations about half this amount. The American Red Cross says that in the U.S., someone needs blood every two seconds, and someone needs platelets every 30 seconds. Multiple studies have shown that the main reason people donate is due to selflessness, charity, general awareness regarding the demand for blood, increased confidence in oneself, helping a personal friend or relative, and social pressure. Lack of blood donations can occur due to fear, lack of faith in the medical professionals, or inconvenience. Blood shortages routinely occur between July the 4th and Labor Day, and between Christmas and New Year. So if you've got some extra, why not give it? The life you save may be your own. Well, Larry, what have you got for us from the peanut gallery today? Bram Stoker from Saisora, Romania, writes to say, quote, I enjoyed your podcast on blood donations. It's one of my favorite hobbies, and I love to talk to anyone who will listen about it. 
Many people don't realize how corporate greed, medical negligence, and structural inequities ruined the blood industry. Now it's hemorrhaging as demand outpaces supply, unquote. Well, Bram, thanks for your perspective on the blood donation industry and those kind words about the podcast. Larry, my guess is chimps have some sort of blood donation scheme set up for when they have an accident which causes blood loss. No? No chimp blood bank? What a pity. Hope you don't fall and cut yourself. Anyway, folks, tell one person about the podcast today. You'll be glad you did. <laughs>